Hi there. A note at the start of this podcast, we recorded the episode on Thursday and there have actually been some significant developments since then. So on Saturday, the Syrian Democratic Forces announced it had actually eliminated the Islamic State from their very last stronghold in Baghouz in Syria. Now, we talk about that region quite a lot throughout the podcast, so we want to let you know first. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. This week, what happens in Ireland when Islamic State members want to return home? I'm joined in studio now by our senior reporter, Michelle Hennessy, who has been immersed in this um, for the past couple of weeks because it has been such an interesting story, Michelle. You know, we've seen headlines of ISIS brides kind of around the world. What's been happening? Well, it's one of those stories that the more you dig into it, the more there is, like pulling a a thread on on a jumper. You know, you just keep pulling and pulling. But I'm sure people are very familiar with the the high profile case in the UK of Shamima Bajam. And she had lost two children, was pregnant when she made an appeal to return to England to have her baby. And she had just been 15 when she left to join Islamic State and the British Home Office has now revoked her citizenship. So there was a big debate around that, which is really what brought this issue kind of back into, you know, public discussion again. All over the news, even in Ireland here, it like was. we were hearing and having opinions on that case, whether she should come home, whether her kids should be or her child should be allowed to come and home. And what we would do here as well. So this is kind of where the discussion has come from. And like with a lot of UK news stories, um, we seem to end up replicating them here. So it wasn't long before we had our own um, so-called ISIS bride. That woman is is called Lisa Smith. She did an interview with ITV and this is how she was recognised uh, in Syria. She's in a camp there at the moment and she's been detained by uh, Kurdish forces. Uh, she's there with her two-year-old son. And it emerged after that story broke that she was also formerly a member of the Irish Defence Forces and worked as a flight attendant on the government jet. Uh, So needless to say, it's become a big story here now. And then from that, we've got a wider discussion about what do we do when people come home? Because that's going to become a real issue for not just Ireland, not just the UK, uh, but other European countries and other countries around the world. As the Islamic State falls, where are they going to go? Yeah, as you said, there are so many different strands to the Lisa Smith story. Why? How? even where it happened. And if we zoom out further, there are loads of different aspects, important ones to explore as well. And we will get to many of them today. But let's take a step back to see how we got here in the first place. Like we know civil war broke out in Syria in 2011 and that the Islamic State took advantage of that seizing Syrian lands. But why are we worried about people returning from there right now? It's become a concern now for Western countries because Islamic State has been losing both power and territory in Syria. And for the first time, its members have been wanting to return to their home countries. We're more used to people leaving countries to join Islamic State. Now the situation is being reversed. So right now, Islamic State is besieged in its last enclave at the village of Baghouz. And this village is in the northeast of Syria, an area where Islamic State militants uh, are fighting against Kurdish forces still. The Kurdish forces are allies of the United States. And after the Syrian war broke out in 2011, the US trained and armed these Kurdish forces. uh, And they're part of a group called the Syrian Democratic Forces, the SDF. Um, They've been crucial in driving Islamic State out of this region. And the SDF hasn't moved into this last small bit of territory that Islamic State has left. What they say um, is that they were afraid at first the jihadists would use civilians as human shields. So they've allowed 
two weeks for people to move out of the area. During this time, there were more than 10,000 people who left Baguz and went to SDF territory. And that included the wives and children of jihadists. Yeah, because we had heard a lot of news reports about that, those human shields using women and children, which is horrendous. But if there is no IS territory left other than this pocket, where are these people going? Well, at the moment, they're living in refugee camps. And I think we've been hearing particularly recently an awful lot about them. The conditions are, are very poor in those camps. And we'll talk a bit more about that later. But some of the wives and children of fighters still remain in the besieged tunnels. A Kurdish commander recently said those that have stayed are there to fight or blow themselves up. They are the most radical. And really, this uh, this whole piece is why it's only becoming a problem for Western countries recently. Before this, most Islamic State fighters and their families, they weren't expressing a desire to return home. But now, as they lose power, people are wanting or in some cases are being forced to go home. So President Donald Trump announced in December that the United States was pulling its troops out of the area. And he's been urging nations to take back fighters so that the US isn't tied up in this any longer than is necessary. Although he hasn't shown a willingness to take back his own citizens who went to join the Islamic State. So even just in that, it shows the complexities of the situation we're in. Speaking about the camps you talked of there, do we know how many Irish people are in them? It's not clear exactly how many. We do know um, of of two in particular uh, people who were there. Now, Lisa Smith is obviously one of those people. She, what we know about her is that she's a woman in her late 30s. She has a son who's believed to be two and he is there with her. And and her husband is believed to have been killed a few months ago. Uh, She she married a a British man, a British Muslim man. And she's being held by the Kurdish-led forces at the moment. Do we know much about that marriage? Because we hear this ISIS bride thing. Do we know, did she want to marry him? Did she not want to marry him? Was it a range? Do we know anything about that? Well, friends of hers uh, have said, and there have been reports about, um, you know, things that she posted on Facebook, that she did seem to be quite happy when she she was first married. And th- there isn't an awful lot about her life in Syria, because obviously, you know, th- there wouldn't be an awful lot coming back from there over social media. Mm. Uh, so it, there isn't a huge amount uh, known about that. We do know a little bit about her life here before she left. Now, she did an interview with the Irish Independent back in 2011. And by this time, she had converted uh, to Islam and was working in the army transport unit. And she said that she had been a a party girl before her conversion. And she said, you know, I did it all, the the drink, the drugs, smoking, everything. And she said that she was looking for something meaningful in life. And this is where this sort of search began. And it was was more of a general spiritual search, according to her. She said, I didn't have much grounding in the Catholic faith. I was looking for answers, why we were here, what our purpose in life. I just knew we couldn't be on this earth for no reason. And she also talked about the pressure of life getting to her. She said there was so much pressure to look good. Uh, There were no morals, nothing solid. I was all airy fairy on the outside, but inside I knew something was something was wrong. And, you know, she she kind of looked at other faiths. Um, Buddhism is one thing she talked about. She also talked about, you know, other spiritual things like fairies and, and angels. And she said in an interview that she used to think of Muslims as, quote, bombers. But she got to know a few Muslim women on Facebook and she said they seemed peaceful and content. And she began studying Islam. She said in this interview nearly 24 hours a day. This is in 2011. She was studying the Quran for 24 hours 24 a day. 24 hours a day. And she also told the paper that, Um, we get a bit of an insight about what her family thought at the time that her mother thought it was just a phase but you know she's being supportive even though she didn't understand her having to wear a scarf and and give up work Lisa Smith also spoke about you know what she believed her role was as a Muslim woman and she said that was to be a housewife or to get a job working with other women she said at the time if practiced properly Islam is 
as a religion is brilliant. It sorts out all of mankind's problems. And uh, now we've heard from a, a woman um, who knew Lisa Smith uh, since this recent story about her broke, uh, that she had been talking to a couple on Facebook um, before she left. And she and this woman believes that Lisa was radicalised online while she was here. Yeah, because I was going to say, it's a big jump from deciding that Islam is the faith for you or the religion yeah. for you and then being radicalised to join a terrorist group. Yeah. And and the thing is, we, we don't know a huge amount now about who this couple were or, you know, were there other people that, that she was talking to. Um, but she did leave Ireland then in, in late 2013. She went to Tunisia where she met her husband. Um, and like I said, he, he's believed to have been killed a few months ago. But it, it was in Tunisia that it's reported that she became more radicalised there than she had been while she was here. But it, it, it does seem it began here. Uh, and then by, by 2015, she had travelled to Syria. Now, we can only theorise about why it is that she decided to join Islamic State. Uh, only Lisa herself knows that. And she did an interview uh, with ITV recently uh, from the camp in, in Syria where she's being held, where uh, she talks a little bit about why she went. She left with all she has, her son and a few bags of belongings. Her dream of a utopian Islamic state has disappeared behind her. The people don't have food. Uh, they're struggling like this for food and money and everything's expensive. And so I don't know how they keep, they're going to keep living. She's just left Bagus, the final patch of land held by ISIS. And she told ITV News she's British, although she seems to have an Irish accent. How are the people in the Bagus now that's left behind? They're tired. Um, morale is low, I suppose. Uh, some, are, some are strong, some... It's, it's like any roller coaster for the people, you know? Some want to leave, some don't want to leave, some, some are hungry, some are not hungry, some, you know, just... Some are tired, not tired, things like that. She says she converted to Islam seven years ago and was enticed to Syria by ISIS propaganda. I say you come, you see the propaganda, the videos. Yani, you want the Islam, you want to come, you want to live in a Muslim country, in a Muslim environment, no music, no uh, smoking, no drinking, no prostitution, no anything like this, you know. And you want clean, clean life like this. And just, this, this is what you want. But sometimes it's not like this. That clean life comes up quite a bit when you listen to the women who have returned from what they deem the caliphate. Are there other people that we know of from Ireland over there as well? There are. So there's one other man um, who is being held in Syria at the moment and his name is Alexander Bekmirzaev. He's 45. He's originally from Belarus and he came here in the early 2000s. Uh, he married a woman, not an Irish woman here, and they had a child together and he obtained Irish citizenship in 2010. And now he worked in, in Dublin um, in various jobs, retail jobs, also as a security guard. And it's believed he was radicalised here in Ireland by a Jordanian man uh, and this would have been in person rather than, than online in, in sort of chat forums or on Facebook or anything like that. He was put on a watch list and monitored by members of the Garda Special Detective Unit while he was living here and he was reportedly considered 
quite a serious player. Uh, you know, he had been seen hanging around with a number of individuals that Gardy were watching. Um, so, you know, he would be one person who would have been known when he was here before he, before he left. Now, he left Ireland in, in 2013 with his family and he made his way to Syria to fight in the civil war with the Islamic State group. And he's now being held by the, the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is um, mostly Kurdish forces. So not originally from here, but he is an Irish citizen. Yes, exactly. And, and you know, that that's part of the discussion that, that we'll be getting into later on about, you know, what power is there for the government when it comes to people who have Irish citizenship. And there's another Irish citizen people may have heard of already. So there's another person um, and there's a court case going on at the moment in relation to this person, Ali Sharaf Damash. Uh, he was born in Algeria. He's 53 and he married an Irish woman in 2003 and also holds Irish citizenship as well as Algerian citizenship. Uh, while he was living in Waterford, he was wanted in the US. He was accused of being the ringleader of a jihadist cell that was plotting attacks in Europe and in Southern Asia. So again, you know, this was somebody who was considered a big player and there was an attempt by the US authorities to have him extradited from Ireland but he fought that successfully um, which was actually caused a controversy in the US at the time. In 2015 he was arrested when he travelled to the Spanish city of Barcelona and police there said that he was plotting with a number of other individuals to kill Lars Vilks, uh, a Swedish cartoonist who had drawn caricatures of the Prophet Muhammad. And now he was reportedly in the same terror cell um, as US citizen Colleen LaRose that people will probably know better as Jihad Jane. And Dimash himself was known under the pseudonym The Black Flag. So, you know, again, somebody that was quite high profile and um, quite well known by the authorities and wanted for a, a number of uh, terrorist crimes and in connection to a number of, of uh, terrorist activities. He was handed over to the US authorities um, by the Spanish police in 2017 and he's currently serving a 15 year sentence in a maximum security prison in the US, um, which is actually where they had wanted to get him extradited to from here. So we believe Lisa Smith was radicalised online while she was living here. We know Alexander Bekmirzaev was radicalised by another man also while living Living in Ireland. So you've been talking to some experts this week about the different types of radicalisation. What have they said to you? That's right. So I spoke to Dr. Pat Dolan. He's a professor in NUI Galway. In his opinion, people tend to get wrapped up in this idea of extremists being radicalised on the internet and that the internet is to blame for all of this. He believes that there are wider societal reasons that people end up being radicalised. I think the uh, problem we have is a deeper problem and potentially into the future, a more serious problem that has not been addressed. And that is that we are uh, putting together kind of almost like a perfect storm situation. What I mean by that is, if you look at the rights of um, asylum seekers, refugees and so forth that have come to Ireland, it's uh, whereas there has been some success stories overall, the conditions under which they've been placed are appalling. And and do you think then that that, that feeds into the radicalisation piece then for, for those people who are here? Well, I think that's the risk we're, we're playing. I mean, and that that's the, the that's what I am concerned about. You know, I would go so far as to say we will we will talk about the treatment of of people who've come to this country in years to come the same way uh, as as we are now talking about the mother and baby schemes and the Magdalene laundries. But, I mean, people seem to have this mythical belief it's all to do with the internet. And, well, actually, it's, I don't think it is. I think it's about more deeper things to do with integration, belonging, sense of uh, embeddedness in civic society. And if people feel in Ireland that they come here and they're not wanted, they're not welcome and they're treated in that way, uh, you're running the risk of them then being lured by uh, clerics who are on the extreme and imams that, that will... Uh, you know, pull them into a different 
uh, route, which is more far more worrying and violent and dangerous. Michelle, obviously this isn't an Ireland-only problem. So what are other countries doing when people come back? It really is kind of different everywhere. And that includes, um, you know, within the European Union. Uh, we, we obviously have, you know, the, the high profile case in, in the UK. And that's uh, Shemaima Bijam who you were talking about. And, you know, with her, there was a massive debate around that. Like people said, had in so a, many feelings. So many it. feelings about this in a different way to the discussions that we've had around men who we knew that were actually doing the fighting. Um, now, with her, there was also a discussion about her child. She was pregnant at the time and she said... Uh, which is what a lot of the women who were there are saying is that they wanted a better life for their children. They wanted somewhere safe. It's not safe there. And the conditions in the camps are terrible. Uh, she said she wanted to come back here, have her baby and, and you know, just live a quiet life in England. Um, now, what happened with her is that the British Home Office decided to revoke her British citizenship and she gave birth to her, her little boy. He died of pneumonia and when he was three weeks old. So just in, to show how camp. dangerous it is, it's not even just the fighting. There's, they can perish for just... Exactly. There's a big shortage of, of supplies and that's food and, and, you know, medical supplies as well. Um, there are the two other women in the UK who are living in Syrian camps and their children have also, um, both them and their children have also been stripped of their citizenship, according to news reports from there. So, I mean, you can see that, that that's one approach that the, the UK has taken. Um, if we look, say, to the Netherlands, the, the Justice and Security Minister recently said that the government is cooperating with the authorities in Syria in relation to the return of female ISIS members. But he was asked about helping uh, Shemaima Bejum's Dutch husband uh, and he said his uh, his government would not offer help to Dutch men in Syria who were willing to return. Where do they go then? Well, th- that's the big question, you know. Um, th- there's a, a big discussion now in European countries about whether they should um, be, be tried in Syria. And, you know, it, in some cases, um, in, in Iraq, for example, uh, in January, uh, a court condemned a German woman to death by hanging after finding her guilty of belong to the jihadist group uh, and she, she said to have admitted uh, in interrogations that she left Germany for Syria and, and then went to Iraq. But obviously the, the criminal justice systems in these countries are, are quite different. Uh, and, you know, there's this citizenship discussion as well that if somebody has a right to return to their country, um, how can, can governments deny them that right? Yeah, so let's get into that statelessness um, idea. So Our conversation here was vastly different to the conversation that the UK had once Lisa Smith was discovered to be there. You know, the Taoiseach, our justice minister, all said, you know, she is she's an Irish citizenship. She has a right to citizenship. We won't be stripping her of it. It's a complex case. so We'll deal with it if and when she comes back. Um, But it it kind of on the outset seemed like a much softer conversation. Could we have revoked her citizenship if the feelings were different around it. In the case of Lisa Smith, we couldn't have. She only has Irish citizenship uh, and Ireland has signed up to a United Nations treaty which states the right to nationality is a fundamental human right. So we've basically committed to never leaving a person stateless, which is what would happen if we uh, stripped Lisa Smith of her Irish citizenship. Uh, with Bek Merkzayev, uh, he does have dual nationality as he's originally from Belarus and there is a mechanism on the statute book that the government can use if it chooses. Uh, but at the time of his arrest, uh, Taoiseach Leo Radker said any Irish citizen around the world is entitled to consular assistance and will get it. So there hasn't been any indication, at least publicly, that the government in his case will, will seek to do this. Um, but, you know, we'll have to see where that goes. What would the reason, just that he joined ISIS, would that be enough of a reason? Well, th- there is uh, the case of uh, Ali Sharaf Damash, um, where in December, Charlie Flanagan, the Minister for Justice, decided to 
do just that to strip him of, of his Irish citizenship on the basis that he he broke the oath he took to declare uh, fidelity to the Irish nation and loyalty to the state. So it's basically because he he was um, you know he was convicted of terrorist offences in the US and that was part of the reason why the Minister for Justice took this step. And this was actually the first time the state has uh, moved to remove citizenship from a naturalised resident. Now, he is challenging this in the courts. He's arguing that if he's sent to Algeria after his sentence is served, he may be tortured or killed there. So we'll have to see what the outcome of that case is. So even in that, it seems quite straightforward. You took an oath, you broke the oath. We can now take back what we said. And even that, there's going to be legal complexities from it. Exactly. And we're probably going to see more challenges to this because there are reviews of decisions on the revocation of at least another 30 people pending. Uh, So this is just, you know, like with what do we do with people who are returning, uh, there are going to be legal challenges that we haven't seen before um, starting in the coming years. You preempted my question there, Michelle, because I was just going to ask, what do we do when they come back? So we're not sure that they will, but if they do, what? where do we even start? Well, there is actually a, a, a manual, believe it or not, um, for how to do this. The European Commission um, has a radicalisation awareness network and that network has a manual for member states on how to respond to the return of terrorist fighters and Sorry, there's something just very odd about a manual for this, but... Exactly, and it was written a few years ago um, and like we were saying before, you know, this is something where every case is is different, but there are some generalisations that you you can apply to it and it is helpful for governments to have some kind of a a direction because, you know, this is kind of a a new phenomenon. They're not used to dealing with this. Um, Now, when it comes to people's reasons for returning, the Radicalisation Awareness Network, we'll call it RAN, um, listed a number of reasons for people and this includes, you know, disillusionment uh, with the Islamic State or just with, you know, the, the the conflict that's going on there, family pressure. So, you know, people at home saying, what are you doing over there? Come back. Uh, poor living conditions and healthcare. And that that would be particularly a case when it comes to women um, wanting to come home with their children because their children are sick or injured or, or just starving in some cases. Some want to come home because they're being sent to carry out an attack or feel that they can do more for, for the cause in Europe. And some of them have been captured and returned home unwillingly. Uh, and this might be the case, you know, with, with some of the, the Europeans who've been captured over there, particularly the men. Because So those last two are pretty scary for governments. Well, they might only want to come home to wreak more havoc or because they are being forced to. They are. And this whole conversation has those sort of unsettling aspects to it. Um, You know, even when we talk about uh, the the women and children returning, there are debates about that. With the female returnees, this RAN manual says, you know, that they obviously want better lives for their children. But it also says that when it comes to female members of the terrorist group, depicting them as victims um, is a mistake. Uh, First of all, it can deprive them of their agency and ignore the fact that Western women in particular who join jihadist groups tend to be very motivated by ideology and and in essence that, you know, they they knew what they were doing um, and made a a very conscious decision to go over. Now, they may not have known the full extent of what was going to happen when they got there, uh, but but like I said, it was a conscious decision. So do we reduce women almost if we portray them as the ISIS bride or a victim of a violent regime? That appears to be what what Ran is saying and it's actually an interesting take on it. Now, this uh, network has said that you know, returning men in particular may have been involved in in war crimes, but 
they also, all of them, the men and the women, can be, you know, victims of uh, rape, of torture, and they may have very serious injuries. And, uh, you know, they have seen some very traumatic things. So even for the, the people who weren't involved in the fighting, you know, there, there's, there are um, potentially very serious mental health issues and there's trauma then involved for, for the children who are coming back as well. Yeah, what, what are countries doing about the children? Obviously, we might have to take back Lisa Smith's two-year-old um, do they remain with parents do they get taken into state care what happens in those situations uh, again it's one of those case by case basis things so it really it happens across the board everything that you just mentioned there is happening in, in various places um, so in France for example they recently the government recently uh, flew back five orphaned children who were the children of French citizens and, and they uh, flew them back from Syria uh, now if there are family members they may be placed with family members or they may be placed in foster homes uh, and there are cases also a number of children uh, Russian children have been brought back to Russia and again and some placed in foster families and some with, with um, you know, other relatives. You know, th- there are debates about whether the children should even be brought home without their parents. Um, there was an interesting uh, survey that was done, a poll that was done in France recently uh, that I, I found quite startling, actually. And 67% of people in this poll said that they believed that the children of uh, ISIS fighters, ISIS members, should be left in Syria and Iraq. Uh, and that they shouldn't the be children back. should be the left. children should I know it was uh, above eighty percent that you know that people should should face um, you know criminal justice in those countries, but that was about the adults. But still, sixty seven percent said the children should be left. I there. know people's emotions are so heightened when it comes to to Islamic State because of the various terror attacks, but that mm. that seems quite astonishing that people would think that children should remain in these yeah. horrific circumstances. It is. And, it, you know, it's it's one of those things I wonder, um, you know, how people would feel about it here. I imagine actually that there would be a softer approach to the children here. Uh, and we heard from the children's minister, Catherine Zappone, that when it comes to Lisa Smith's little boy, uh, you know, that the government will have his, his welfare uh, in mind with any action that they take. And have we had to deal with this before? Has Tusa had to deal with it before? They haven't. Now, what they said to me, um, I asked them for a statement on this and obviously they, they wouldn't comment on any you know individual case. Um, but what they did say is that they, they don't have a specific policy in place for children who are, um, you know, ISIS fighters, children. Um, it would be a very specific policy to have. But they do have systems in place to deal with all the the types of problems that somebody would have. And they do have experience dealing with migrant children and in particular migrant children who um, have come here unaccompanied. So, you know, they said that they're they're ready and and willing to step in as needs be. So that's the case of, say, a a migrant child or an orphan child. But what if the parents are prosecuted? And is it likely that any country outside of Syria will be able to prosecute? I know you mentioned Iraq, but, you know, will the Germany's, the UK's, the Ireland's Mm -hmm. of the world be able to prosecute people for what? happened over in Syria? There's going to be a big problem uh, for police forces in gathering evidence and that's going to be the the biggest challenge for them. Um, They're probably not going to send people over to Syria to investigate this and and look for evidence and even if they did I imagine there would be very little proof that somebody was, you know, unless you have maybe a video of somebody involved in in the conflict uh, that you just wouldn't be able to prove that somebody uh, was involved in the fighting, that somebody had necessarily been a member uh, of the Islamic State group because there, there were still people living in these areas 
who were not involved in the conflict, who were just ordinary innocent people uh, who, who happened to be caught up in it. Uh, and those will be some of the people who, who have, have come out of, of that last little area um, that the Kurdish forces are, are concentrating on now as well. So it's going to be very difficult to even distinguish between those people who was involved and who wasn't, particularly when it comes to women and children. So that, that's the big challenge for them. Um, now, when it comes to what, what we'll do here and what we can do here, the government, uh, the, the language around um, Lisa Smith in particular has more so been about, you know, she's an Irish citizen and therefore she has the right to come back uh, rather than, you know, the potential threat that somebody could pose coming back here to the wider community. Uh, Justice Minister Charlie Flanagan has also said, you know, they'll, they'll make every effort uh, to get her home. But I asked his department a number of questions about what the policy is in relation to this issue and what the government plans to do. Um, and a, a spokesperson said, you know, that all measures necessary um, and consistent with the law will be taken to protect the state and the people from harm. And they said the return of those suspected of having been active in conflict in both Syria and Iraq, because we can't forget about Iraq in this conversation, uh, presents complex challenges, including questions of public protection the prosecution of offences, the protection of citizens' rights, and particularly the rights of non-combatants. And they're talking there about you know, the women and children. Uh, and they also mentioned de-radicalisation. Uh, and they said none of these matters lend themselves to, to easy resolutions. So the government is saying itself, this is complex and they don't fully know how to deal with it. They, they are looking at it. They said these challenges have been discussed at EU level and at meetings here at government level. And they said that each individual will be dealt with on a case-by-case basis. So I have a quote here from the department. If any fighters do return here and there's evidence available that they've committed terrorist offences, then they will be investigated fully by the guard authorities with a view to prosecution. Any decision on prosecution would, of course, be a matter solely for the DPP. And the authorities here will continue to work closely with their international partners in this regard. So, I mean, they th- what they're saying is that if they can prove somebody has done something criminal, then they will pursue them. Um, but if we're, you know, being real about it, the, the chances of that are, are, are quite slim. So say if there is, because obviously a lot of there's a lot conducted online around this. So say if they can prove that they were a member of the Islamic State, would that be enough? I'm I'm thinking here of, say, the Special Mm. Criminal Court is used to Mm. convict people of being members of the IRA, a terrorist organisation. So would those laws allow for people to be prosecuted? We do do have legislation. So um, the the Criminal Justice Terrorist Offences Act 2005 provides that offences against uh, the state acts can apply to any terrorist group as if it were an unlawful group. So even if it's not a prescribed terrorist group here, the law does deal with the Islamic State group. uh, And this would allow for conviction if you could prove, and that's the important point here, if you can prove a person was an active member uh, while they were living in Ireland. And it carries a prison sentence of up to 10 years. But that's very specific in that you you have to prove that there were terrorist activities in this state and not necessarily in Syria. Uh, There are cases... Um, where, you know, a person has joined after they left, you know, so maybe they travelled to another country first, like they travelled to Tunisia, for example, and then... And that's moved, where they joined. And then they officially. joined and then they moved on. Or maybe they didn't officially. I mean, nobody, what is no, nobody fully knows, uh, you know, what's the official... Do you, do you get a membership card or something like that? <laughs> nobody really knows, um, you know, what constitutes you've officially joined the Islamic State. So, you know, you would have to prove when and where. Um, there's an EU directive on combating terrorism that makes it an offence to travel to a third country to conduct terrorist activities there but we've not fully adopted its provisions yet so we wouldn't be able to use that um 
And, you know, like I've said, the Gardaí would have such a difficult time obtaining enough evidence of the person's activity while they were in Syria, even if we were able to use that. Um, so it would likely be the biggest obstacle to prosecution. And Lear Varadkar himself has already said simply travelling to Syria and living in these areas is not a crime. Yeah, I think people would be quite concerned if they hear that we haven't fully adopted the provisions of something that would let us prosecute in jail people who could, you know, be a threat to us. And I think across Europe, because of those terrorist attacks we've seen, if there is, you know, we're only talking about probably a handful in Ireland, but mm. I presume across the continent, you're talking about hundreds of people. That's right. I mean, in, in, in Germany alone, uh, it's about 350 people. And, you know, compared to the population of Germany, that's not that many. But if those are 350, uh, you know, very extreme uh, sympathisers, you know, 350 jihadists is is an awful lot. And especially people who've, you know, if they are people who've been involved in active combat uh, for a number of years, you, you've got some potentially very serious problems there. Yeah. So say we we can't prosecute, we can't jail in the, then we have to work with someone to de-radicalize is that even possible well that's kind of the next the next part of the conversation with it um now i, I was talking to um the, the local imam a uh, new boy uh, in dundalk uh, and i was asking him about you know that the reaction in in the local area to, to the lisa smith story because she's obviously from there uh and you know he was saying that actually the muslim community in dundalk are quite angry about the negative attention on them they feel a bit like they're being blamed or they're being looked at negatively because of it um, and it's totally understandable yeah. absolutely and you know they're upset at the way Islam is being portrayed um, by by extremists um, but I asked him you know would would she be welcome to go worship in the mosque when she returns and he said his own personal feeling on it is that community centres and places of worship are for everybody and he said in Islam when a person has done wrong you help the person to find a better path and it can't all be about punishment. He's saying that if, if Lisa had gone to a leader in the Muslim community for guidance uh, to give her some of the answers to the questions that she was asking in her own mind, maybe this wouldn't have happened. And he said that her story may be a lesson to others not to go down that path. So this is something that we hear a lot from leaders in the Muslim community and also from experts in international terrorism and in de-radicalisation, that, you know, even if we do manage to prosecute somebody, that can't be the end of it. Um, it there needs to be a focus on integration and on re-socialisation. And people might not like that discussion. People might think, you know, well, just leave them to it. But if if people here are really serious about, um, you know, reducing the risk, mitigating that risk to communities, uh, what the experts are saying is this is the way it has to go. I've been speaking this week to Dr. Ajmal Hussein at the University of Manchester. Manchester about de-radicalization, which can, I think, seem like a very abstract concept for people in this discussion. Now, he has a lot of experience in this area of research, and he says it is possible to do this. He also told me a bit about how it's done. It is, it is a sensitive approach uh, because, um, because one thing that I found speaking to people who've either been imprisoned under anti-terror laws or who have, who have returned um, from being abroad is that they don't want to be known in public. And so you might recall with the Shanima Begum case, there was a huge backlash to her appearing on the TV and, and, was, and, and saying that she wanted to come back. And we saw these sort of really abhorrent news articles about people using her face on a shooting range in a cycle, in, in, in a rifle uh, shooting range. And so, 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 so returnees or, or people who have been convicted 
and now release are really, they want to play a low key role. They want to be invisible almost because of the stigma there is attached. But on the flip side, there are groups and there are individuals who are actively engaged in de-radicalization work, one by supporting materially the needs of these people in terms of coming back into society and just needing a place to stay and having a supportive structure, being able to eat, drink and socialize as a normal person. But then also um, individuals who are active in, in, in sort of helping to reform the ideas that might have that might have pushed these young these individuals to think that it was an Islamic cause that took me there, etc. So there are people out there correcting the Islamic opinions um, within, you know, that, that, that people are holding. But these are by no means easy jobs to do. Hearing that, Michelle, I think some people might still be a bit sceptical about how workable this actually is. Well, here the Department of Justice has actually said something similar to what Ashmal was saying there. They told me that the, the work of the security authorities here is just one part of this. And that's the monitoring side and the possible pursuing of criminal activity. But they said that this must be complemented by long-term measures to avoid any environment that would be conducive to social exclusion that might lead to radicalisation and violent, violent extremism. And that involves things like funding community groups and also providing support for the integration of migrants and their children. I think that's exactly it, Michelle. Just continuing this conversation is so important. And it reminded me of a series we ran on the journal.ie last year called Radical Pathways by Orla Ryan, who examined the world's response to this from protecting people from radicalisation to de-radicalising them in cases where it happened. And if people are interested in reading more, we'll include links to that in the article with this episode. So thanks very much, Michelle, for all your work on this episode. Thanks. you for listening to The Explainer. As always, special thanks to our executive producer, Christine Bowen, producer Aoife Barry, assistant producer and tech op Nikki Ryan. For this episode, we had senior reporter Michelle Hennessy and a special thanks to those who contributed to her reporting. Credit to ITN Getty Images for the clip from Syria and we'll be back with another discussion on a new story next Sunday. Mm-hmm.